Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as you know, we're in a series called Conversations with God, Living in the Lord's Prayer. And what we're doing is we're, we're looking over the next few weeks into the Lord's Prayer. We're unpacking what it is that Jesus wants to teach us about how to pray. And so uh, we'll, we'll read here Matthew chapter 6. Verse 9, let's read it. I'll, I'll read it and you can follow along in your Bible. It says, this then is how you should pray. It's Jesus speaking. He said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, this passage, of course, is often quoted and often said. But it's important for us to understand that it was not a prayer to be recited. It's not only to be recited. It is a framework. It would be more accurate to be able to interpret what Jesus said to his disciples when he said, when you pray, say, as you, when you pray, pray something like this. There's a, there's a pattern here that I want you to get. I want you to understand these ideas. And so today we're going to start with our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. This is an important title that God is given by Jesus. When he's teaching his disciples to pray, he says, our, when you pray, say, our Father. And then he follows it with this line, who art in heaven. Now, that second half of that line, that's an address. That's a, that's a qualifier. That's an identifying phrase. Our Father, who art in heaven. Now, it would be, I think, more accurate to say, our Father, the one in the heavens. Several translations uh, have removed the plural form. Some translations keep the plural form, but I think it would be more accurate to say, our Father, the one in the heavens. Not any Father, but the one who lives in the heavens. And it's not just sort of um, the one who's way out there. Uh, unfortunately, our Father who art in heaven has come to mean our Father who is far away and much later. <laughs> our Father who is way out there and I haven't seen him in a while and I hope he can come someday to help me. It's more accurate if we would, if we would see it as our Father, the one in the heavens, and understand the mindset with which Jesus was dealing with when he taught this prayer. And the mindset of the disciples and the others who would hear it would be that the heavens were understood as not only the, the, as far as the eye can see and as far as you could go up into space, but also the heavens were everything around us, all the way out and all the way down to the air around your head all the way to everything that's going on around us. What it is, is Jesus saying, our Father who surrounds our lives. Our Father who lives in the heavens, but surrounds us everywhere. 
Our Father who is very near and present, even though he lives throughout the heavens. It would be as if he was saying, our Father who is all over the place and dominates everywhere he is. And he is here. It's, it's, it's a really important distinction. Jesus wasn't saying, our Father who lives way out there. He was saying, our Father who lives right here. It's an important paradigm. I know that when I speak, like in my family, we have identifying phrases for each other, right? We call each other by certain nicknames. And in some ways, Jesus is creating this identifying phrase for his disciples. And uh, while our nicknames for our family members are not so holy or vast, they are important. Well, why are they important? Because, because everything that's said in the midst of the conversation when we identify who it is that we're talking to, the context, the understanding of what we're saying is found in the identifier, right? So if I come in the house and I open the door and I say, hey, peanut heads. <laughs> peanut heads are my two little guys, seven and five, and they know it. And they come running. Daddy, daddy, daddy's home. It's awesome. I love it. My daughter is named uh, Grace, beautiful name. But we end up calling her Gracie Lou. Gracie Lou. Her name is not Lou. Her middle name is not Lou. Her middle name is Elizabeth. But we somehow happened onto this thing. Oh, Gracie Lou. It's so, it's so good. And when I say, oh, Gracie Lou, sometimes I add poo. <laughs> Gracie Lou poo. I don't know. It's just something about it. It's really endearing, right? Taylor is uh, Tay-Tay, Tay-Bear, Tay anything with a hashtag and a, or a, what is it? Not hashtag, a dash, yeah, and any number of words, Tay, his name is Taylor. Zachary is uh, Schmackery, I, I don't know, it happened when he was a little baby, like Schmackery, and Schmackery helped lead us in worship this morning, it was awesome. We call him Schmackery Schmoo. Sometimes we had poo on the end of that, too. <laughs> Here's what I want you to see is that in the, in the midst of the name is an endearing dynamic. And, uh, and it means something when you use that term. <laughs> when my wife is mad at them, she will use their correct names. <laughs> Zachary Ross Parsley, you get in here right now. There's something that Jesus is doing to help us to understand where God is and who he is, what he's over, how he surrounds us, how he protects us. He is our father. He is our father. He could, Jesus could have said, when you pray, say, oh, great CEO in heaven. He could have said, oh, creator of all things in heaven and earth. And that would have been pretty accurate. But instead, he said, Father. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see this little verse that describes how intimate this idea of Father is. 
That when we see God, he's not some distant deity. He is near and present with us as a father is with his children. And we see Romans 8, chapter 15, and you look at this passage, and it begins to share with us some of the intimacy of how God sees us, what he wants us to call him by name, what name he gives us to call him by. Verse 15 says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, sonship, daughtership, is included there. It's not exclusive. You've not received a, a, a spirit that makes you a slave, and no spirit that makes you fearful, but you've received sonship. You've received the, the, the rights of a son and of a daughter. And by him we cry, Abba, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. It's Aramaic for father, but a more intimate term it would suggest, daddy, papa, daddy. I love it when my kids call me daddy. There's something really good about it. It's a, it's a, it's a term of endearment. And the names that we use for God are so important. We'll talk about that a little more next week. But he says, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Take your pen, if you're keeping notes, and I want you to underline that line. The Spirit, notice, notice we see the Trinity in this passage. We see God the Father, Abba, Father. We see the Spirit working with us, testifying, witnessing to us that we are God's kids, that we belong to him. And then we see now if we are children, verse 17, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, this is crazy, co-heirs with Christ. Do you know what that means? That means if Christ is an heir of everything that God had and everything God his father gave him, you get just as much as Jesus got. You're not the ugly stepbrother. You're not the ugly stepsister. You're in the family. You're a co-heir. You're an heir to everything that God has. He's going to give it to you. He's going to give you the same things he gave Jesus. That's pretty cool. We see this. And this is, I want to highlight for you the three, I think there are three dimensions in prayer. It's when we, when we call out our Father, right? It's important I've had this asked to me. Well, so do we, should we never pray to Jesus? Well, <laughs> no, I, I think he can hear you. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is, is the, the, the person of the Trinity that lives within us, 1 Corinthians says. He lives here in us. As, as you open up your heart to God, his presence on the earth is through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to send you somebody even better than myself, an advocate, a counselor, a comforter, and he's going to come and remind you of everything I said. So we see this. I think this, this indicates there's three dimensions of prayer. There's, there's the Father, and when we see the Father, it's his extravagant love, this love that the Father has. That's important. It causes us to focus on worship and submission. Indeed, when Jesus told his disciples how to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy, or revered, respected. 
right? There's worship and there's submission. Jesus, as we pray, when we pray and we ask Jesus to come and to do what he wants to do, it's, that's, a, that's a good prayer. But as we do it, we, we realize that there's an amazing grace that we've been given because of Jesus and what he's done. What he's done on the cross, how he took our place when sin separated us from God. Sin and failure and mistakes and foolishness kept us from God. Jesus took our place and paid the penalty of sin the debt of sin, so that we wouldn't have to pay it. We could receive life. And then, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something about the intimate, the intimate friendship, the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit, and we focus on relationship. He's the one who whispers into our ear. He's the one who leads us and guides us. Oh, don't go this way. Do this. No, no, this is, this is better for you. Resist the temptation Surrender to your Father. That's the Holy Spirit. And so all of these have a role in prayer. But Jesus, when he teaches his disciples how to pray, he does this for a reason. He does it on purpose because he wants them to see themselves as God's kids. Because this is such a powerful illustration. And here's why I think it is. Because I think that prayer will never be enjoyable until you see God as a loving father. Prayer will never be really enjoyable until you see God as a father. What prayer is, if you don't see God as a father, is duty. What prayer is, is making sure you get up in time to do it. Make sure God likes me so he'll give me the good stuff. Prayer becomes something else. It becomes a ritual. It becomes duty. It becomes all these other things. It becomes dead and dry religion. Unless you see God as a loving father, it's a starting point. Now, the problem is we all have faulty father figures, don't we? We see God through the lens of our own fathers. Some of you have struggled deeply with the difficulty of relating to your father. And I understand that. If you take statistically this congregation right here, 50% of us are touched, scarred by the pain of divorce. Statistically, uh, roughly another, another 25% are dysfunctional in just the way they relate to one another in their family. They're not divorced, but it's just not, it doesn't work like it should. That leaves about 20 to 25% of you that had some kind of good relationship with your dad. In American culture, it's an epidemic. It's a problem. Let me just say as a side note that it is my goal to do our best at One Chapel to empower men to be the fathers they're called to be. That we've got to be the kind of men, yeah, they've got to be the kind of men that will stand up and be the representation of God to their families that they're supposed to be. That's what, we're, that's what we've got to do here. It's countercultural. And we've got to be countercultural like that. So there are some faulty father figures that we all, and I, I was thinking about how we see God sometimes. And I, I want to give you some illustrations of how we see God, all right? Sometimes we see God like Donald Trump. Donald Trump, you know, he's super mean, high performance. You know, everything is like, if you don't measure up, you're fired. 
It's like something like, uh, like that, that we, we, we try to do all that we can to do just to perform for him. And then we have a false view of who God is. Some of you see God like uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, he's super intelligent, um, really generous, gives a lot of money away. Does, you know, he really, he's really generous. I mean, it's amazing to see all the things that he's done. But you got to work within his quirky operating system and you just don't get it. Some of you see God like uh, Orion Seacrest. Yeah, I know. Just go with me here for a second. Ryan Seacrest, he's like, he's like everybody likes him. He likes everybody else. He's just really such a, a good friend, you know? He's always positive. He's never negative. It's just always, you know, so how's it going today? <laughs> and you think God is your buddy. Somehow he's come down to this crazy level of your buddy. He's not your buddy. He's your father. Another example um, might be uh, Gary, <laughs> Gary Busey. <laughs> Some of you see God like Gary Busey, and you're just like, it's like he, he talks a lot, but you have no idea what he's saying ever. It's like so confusing, I just don't get it. It's like crazy. I don't get it. I don't get anything he says. Sometimes... Some of us see God like Bruce Jenner. You know who Bruce Jenner is? He's like the Olympic, um, Olympic medalist in like 72, 76, I think it was. But now he's famous for being part of the Kardashian family, right? So they have this show, and it's a crazy show. All this crazy drama all around him. And if you've ever seen the show, he's kind of just off to the side. He just kind of disengaged from all the craziness. Some of you feel like God's just disengaged from all the craziness in your life. And when you feel that way, you don't know what to do. Some of us, we look back at him and get angry. We think he's somehow hands off. Why are you so hands off with me? Why are you so disengaged? That's not the right picture. That's not the picture of the scriptures Give us a, uh, an understanding of God as our Father. Jesus was teaching his disciples to understand that he's dad, he's a father, he loves you. And so prayer begins with a right view of God. Prayer begins with a right view of God. And here's why. It's, be it's because if you start there with the right view, you will not be confused about what's happening around you. When you don't see exactly what you wanted to see in prayer, you won't misunderstand and shake your fist at God. When you start with prayer, when you start prayer with the right view of God, something different happens in your prayer language, your prayer life, the dialogue that you have with him. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. I want you to see an example in the scriptures of a person that really got confused. This is a parable of Jesus. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Matthew 18, verse 21. We can start there because this is uh, Peter, and he's talking to Jesus, and 
they've been talking about forgiveness. And he says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Peter thinks he's really being magnanimous here. Ooh, seven times. And then Jesus answered, I tell you not 70 times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. And so Jesus is trying to tell him something. He says, therefore, all right, so here's what I want you to get. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, stop. Just pause right there. You will have to understand that the story is about how the kingdom of heaven works. This is how God's kingdom works. All right? As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him since he was not able to pay. The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That's about, it's like millions of dollars, all right? That's, he owed millions of dollars and he needed to pay it. And so the, the king ordered that everything be sold so he could pay the debt. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That is a few dollars. A few dollars. So he'd been forgiven this huge amount, and he, then, he, then he goes to his fellow servant, and he, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off. And had the man thrown into prison until he, could repay the, until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured and until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Ow! Whoa! Here's what I want you to see in this picture. Jesus is telling a story about how the kingdom of God works. Here's a man who was forgiven a huge amount of debt. And yet, as he was forgiven, he went immediately out and began to choke a guy as if he was still under the huge amount of debt. He kept acting like he owed millions of dollars to someone else. He didn't get it. It was an, a, a, a poor picture of the king who had just canceled the debt. He didn't get that it had been canceled, and so he kept carrying around that huge, men, that huge debt mentality. And that's how some of us are if we don't understand that our Father loves us. He loves us so much, he's forgiven you a huge amount of debt. He's purchased freedom for you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that freedom allows us to treat others with respect and with care, with love. It transforms us when you understand what your Father has done for you. And so when you look at prayer and you look at Jesus teaching on prayer, and he doesn't want his disciples to be confused, he wants it to be clear, I think the single most important idea in prayer is believing that God is for you. The single most important idea in prayer is believing that God is for you. 
Put that up there, Kate. The single most important idea, the influential idea in your life when you come to prayer is to believe that God is not against you. That you're not trying to get him to do stuff. That he actually really loves you. He's for you and he has good plans for you and he has good ideas for you. That he wants you to be blessed. That he wants you to experience all that he has for you. Now, this is hard to get when we deal with our experience versus what we think God should do for us. <laughs> right? So I had to look at what happened to me when I became a father. I don't know if, you, um, if it happened to you, but I had a certain view of God, my father, and how he loved me. But then when I had children, something transformed my view of how that works. Suddenly, I just became overwhelmed with love. Here, as Marty said it last week, he just had a baby. He's like, I had this little person. Suddenly, they showed up into my world and wrecked my heart. They can't even talk to me, but I'm wrecked. And so there's something that I think we have to look at when we understand how much God loves us. I don't want my kids to experience any pain. I mean, I don't want them to experience any pain. I want to keep them from everything that's harmful. And on my first child, I was crazy nuts about it. Here's the problem. I can't actually keep them from all pain. Actually, parents who try to keep their kids from all pain raise screwed up kids. One of the, one of the challenges is you're, you're watching them try to learn how to walk, and you know, the crew's in the furniture. You ever seen that? It's like... And you, all you could see in your mind as they stumble around the living room is they're going to hit their head right on the corner of that coffee table and gash their head wide open and blood's going to spurt out everywhere. <laughs> Which drives me crazy. I, it happened to my kids. My two boys were pretty rough. They were pretty scary. They both had giant goose eggs on their heads at different times, and that really freaked me out. One time, my son Zachary, we were at Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese, it's a bad place. Where Chuck E. Cheese were there, and, and my, son, my oldest son, Zachary, he got up on the booth, and he was all excited. We were about to dispense the coins that he could go play with, and he sat up on the top of the booth and then started back and lost his balance and hit his head right on the corner of the table, right in the back of his head. Blood started coming out everywhere, and it's pouring, and I'm getting, I mean, I'm, he's screaming, and I'm holding his head with napkins, and the blood just keeps coming, and I'm starting to freak out. I'm like, he's dying right here. He's going to die. Somebody help me. Oh, God. Right in the middle of Chuck E. Cheese, because, you know, the head just keeps bleeding. Right, like if you hit it, it just keeps bleeding. You're like, and I didn't know this. I was a first-time dad. So I was like, I think he's dying right here on the Chuck E. Cheese table. And, and so this, it was so cool. There was a doctor who had his family there at Chuck E. Cheese. He came over and he says, hey, uh, you know, the, if you hit the head, it just kind of keeps bleeding. Then you just got to keep, keep pressure on it. It'll be fine. I was like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I gave him a huge hug. And then I, I, I kept holding my son, and, 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 and I, I, just that little bit of information was like, okay, 
oh, I can get myself back. I don't know what that is that comes over you. Like you don't want your children to suffer. So we took him to the doctor, called the doctor, took him to the office, and then, of course, more pain. Right? He's, you're gonna, they're going to do some... Um, what is it? Stitches. They're going to put stitches in the back of his head. Zachary goes nuts. We're chasing him around the doctor's office, trying to hold him. He's little. Finally had put him in a little papoose. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, I couldn't keep it together. I'm like, babe, I can't handle this. You do it. It's, it's serious. I can't handle it. It drives me nuts. I don't want them to experience pain, and I don't know what to do when they're experiencing it. So he ended up having to glue his head shut. Couldn't actually do it with the, with the stitches, so they just put this glue on it and shoved it closed. <laughs> and then it was fine. <laughs> I want you to see God in this way. I want to keep my kids from pain, but I can't. And in, much, in a similar way, God cannot keep you from all pain. In fact, sometimes, like taking my son to get a shot, he's going to actually do some things that are really good for you that you view as pain from him. I'll never forget the first time I took my kids to the, get a shot, right? And they go, and they, and they sit in the chair, and they're like, oh, just playing with the doctor's stuff, and suddenly the needle comes out, and then it goes into their arm, and I'll never forget the look on Zachary's face. Like, you just let that guy do that to me. There's something wrong here. It's easy to understand that sometimes our fathers challenge us or, or actually discipline us or actually do things that we think are bad, but actually they're helping us. That's not too hard to understand, but it's important to clarify that I don't believe that God ever makes makes people sick. There's, a, there's enough sickness and injustice on this earth. God doesn't have to do that. God never tempts people with sin. Okay? If you want to go over to James real quick, just before we go on, you, James, right after Hebrews, you can see it. It's a famous passage. Verse 2 in James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What? Pure joy? Why? Well, here's, here's the explanation. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its perfect its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Ooh, those are good words. You should say it after me. Mature, mature. Complete, complete, not lacking anything. I, I want to be mature, complete, not lacking anything. I want to have everything I need. Sign me up for that. Oh, wait a minute. That requires perseverance. Sometimes I discipline my boys. Sometimes I send them out to a 104-degree temperature day in the afternoon and force them to mow the yard. Sometimes I'm challenging them to understand how to do something with integrity. And they feel it as pain. I think, I think God does this with us as well. But it's, what's challenging is for us to interpret it correctly. Instead of shaking our fist at him, sometimes we decide 
to do foolish things, and then we suffer the consequences of our own sin and failure. Sometimes other people do bad things to us. And you know why that is? Because people have a free will. The price of a free will, the price of relationship with God, God was willing to give people all over the world the permission to do all kinds of crazy stuff for one reason, and it was to have a relationship with us. If he didn't give us that free will, we're all walking around as robots. God's just all in charge of everything. Making the, that's, we're not robots. He let people do stupid things. And that's why tragedies happen. That's why in a few weeks we're going to talk about how Jesus said, here's what I want you to pray. Pray for God's kingdom to come to the earth, for his will to be done. Why did he pray that? Because it's not done. So how do you interpret God being a loving heavenly father in all this pain and injustice and suffering? That's the challenge for us. It's important for us to see that the difference between an imperfect dad like me that can't really protect his kids from all pain. That God doesn't necessarily protect us from all pain. But it's important to understand that if I'm looking at my kids and they're making mistakes or they're failing or they're doing, I'm always going to be here for them. I'm always going to be available to them when they make a mistake. I'm always going to be ready to help them when they turn to me and say, Dad, I did something really stupid. I did something really terrible. I charged up the credit card. I'm not necessarily going to pay off the credit card for them because I want them to learn the lesson. But I am going to be there to help coach them how to spend wisely. You see it? I'm always going to be there. I'm always going to walk with him. Now, the difference between the imperfect father and our perfect heavenly father, you know what it is? He actually joins us in our suffering. That's what the work of Christ was. Jesus joined us in humanity, in our suffering. This unjust world, he came into it and experienced the same thing with us. God comes into our situation, and as we open up our heart to him, as we let the love of the Father in, he takes what was bad, what we did that was stupid, what others did that was horrible, and he takes it and he shapes it and molds it, if we'll let him, and makes it into something so beneficial to us. That's what the love of the Father does. So if we can learn to respond to him when we have pain, if we can learn to respond to him when we feel injustice, if we can learn to open up our heart and let the Father's love come in, look at what Romans 8.28 says. You've heard it, many of you. And we know that in all things God works to, together the good Good things. He works everything for good for those who what? Wait, for those who love him, not for those who hate him. You want to hate your father and you want to resist him and reject him? That's not going to turn out well for you. <laughs> those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes people think, they, they quote this verse as if none of their decisions make any difference. It's not true. Those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, they're engaged in his purpose. They want his purpose. They open up their lives to his purpose in their lives. That's the person that actually gets the love of the Father working everything for good. 
That's what I want to challenge you to do today. In prayer, I want you to open up your heart to the Father that loves you without limits. Like if I love my kids so much that I can't stand it, how much more does God love us? Two more quick points and we're done. Number two, have confidence in your relationship with him. You don't have to doubt whether he loves you. Look at Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of... He wants to respond to you in your moment of need. It's... This, this relationship is so important because this fatherly relationship is so important because it determines the context of your prayers, the, the content of your prayers, the subject matter. It determines the connection that you have in prayer. If you believe he is a father who really loves you and wants the best for you, you're always looking to him. You're always going to ask him. You're always going to ask him to give you what he wants to give you. And here's the thing that I want you to see when you're praying about something. Faith, which you're, you're putting in him as a father, your trust in him as a father, you're not just putting faith in an outcome. You're putting faith in a person. It's not just faith in an outcome. God, I really want you to do this. I really need this raise. I really need this to happen. God, you need to give me this raise. I need it. My family needs it. Oh, God, please help me. And then, they don't, and then you don't get the raise. What, God, come on, God. You could have given me that raise. Ooh. No, your faith is in a person who can provide for you even though you didn't get the raise. It's not in an outcome. If you'll put your faith in a person rather than an outcome, you'll see outcomes that you never imagined possible. Finally, receive all that God wants for you. Look at this. Matthew 7, verse 7. says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, and will give him a, you'll give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God only has good things in mind for you. That's why we should turn to him and talk to him about everything. Close your eyes, bow your heads. I want you to just take a moment. And I want you to hear what God may be saying to you. Just put your stuff to the side. and The last few minutes we have together, I just want you to consider your view of God. Some of you are struggling because you, life isn't, lining up like you thought it should and it seems like God's kind of left you out in the cold. Can I just challenge you that that's a deception and you should resist it today. Open your heart. Some of you are realizing you've got a, a performance mentality with God and you just live under constant guilt. You don't realize how to let him be your father. You, some of you, you, your relationship with your dad was so bad that it's been really hard to understand how God is working in you and with you. 
Could I ask you in a moment of just openness and vulnerability, would you just be willing to put your trust in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took your place and my place and made it possible for us to have a relationship with God, with our Father. Would you be willing just to open up and give him another opportunity to speak into your life, to lead you, to guide you? Maybe you're here this morning and you, you, you really don't know anything about a relationship with God. All you know is about religion, but you're realizing as I've been talking that you deeply need connection like that and you want to give your life to God. You want to surrender to him. If any of those things describe you, I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. But with everybody's eyes closed and your head bowed, if you say, Pastor, that you, you're describing me and I need you to pray for me and I, I want to surrender to God, my Father. I want to have a new relationship with Him. I want to have an accurate relationship with Him. I want to see Him as He is. Help me. Pray for me. Shoot your hand up in the air right now, just all over the room. If any of those things describe you, yep, way back in the back, back in the back over here. Yep, I see you here in the middle. Anybody else? Help me change my view of the Father. I want a relationship with Him. I want to commit my life to Him. Anybody else? Anyone else? Yep, I see you. I see you. More importantly, God sees you. Would you just pray this prayer with me as I pray it? You can kind of pray it under your breath and just... Open yourself up to him. I'm going to pray it for you. Father, thank you for your love and kindness. The kindness that leads us to repentance, to pushing for our own way. Father, we understand that when we insist on our own way that it becomes painful. But now we all come to you and we say we don't want our own way. We want your way. We want your influence in our lives and so we give ourselves to you we lay down our lives and we say your plan is better than our plan help us to understand how you love us so deeply help us to begin our prayers with understanding the great love of our father we repent forgive us cleanse us heal us Heal our memories, heal our hearts, heal the hurts inside of us so that we can respond to you in a way that's healthy and joyful and honest. Lord, we give our lives to you. We make you the center of our, of our lives and of our hearts, and we choose to follow after you. Thank you. Thank you for embracing us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.